0: Welcome to the Progression Health Podcast. I'm
1: here with Priyanka Naidu. Priyanka, would you like to introduce yourself? Sure. Hi, everyone. So I have a background in psychology, uh, mainly in research. Um, I completed my PhD in 2021. I've also uh, tutored and lectured at university in the past um, in various subjects, and I'm currently doing some research consulting. Uh, primarily, my research projects have seemed to involve questions that use social psychology frameworks. Um, and over the last year or so, I have seemed to have shifted um, my interests and focus a little bit, or expanded my interests, um, and have been really drawn to understanding and applying psychology um, and research in psychology to sort of support people's um, well being and help people achieve their goals. Um, so, you know, when performance, for example, is impacted by Stress, overwhelming emotions, low confidence. Um, so I seem to sort of be heading in that well-being and performance space at the moment.
0: Yeah, very good. Well-being and performance. Yeah. So, is, would you say well-being and performance is your your specialty, like what you specialize in right now? Because yeah, well, i I would.
1: Yeah, I would say I'm shifting that way. So I had an opportunity um, at the beginning of last year, which was to lecture in sports psychology. Um, And I remember when I got it, I was thinking, oh, my goodness, um, what do I know about, you know, sports? But really, it falls under a broader branch of psychology, um, you know, performance psychology. And if you think about it, you know, we perform in a variety of different settings. So we can perform as an artist, as a musician, at work, at school, as an athlete, or we can think about social situations as being a performance and so I found that the course was really applicable to a variety of settings to, you know, a, a whole host of, you know, different kinds of people. And we were, you know, while I was teaching and learning along the way about, you know, effective goal setting, confidence building, managing stress, which are all, you know, important for pretty much everyone. Um, so I think this opportunity to teach this course really sort of led me onto this journey to wanting to, share what I was teaching with a more broader audience because I think everyone can, um, you know, everyone can learn from this. And I run workshops uh, periodically about stress management and behaviour change as well. Um, and I've got some journals as well, a sort of paper-based resource to support with that too.
0: Brilliant. So stress management, can, can you tell me a little bit about that? Is it important and, like, where could somebody start if somebody's listening, they're like, I actually am very stressed or I'm burnt out, what would, what would you recommend?
1: Yes. So there are many things that we can do with um, you know, managing our stress. And I think with stress, you know, we're, we're always going to come up against stresses. So we, what what we can do is, you know, build ways to manage that better. So in my workshops, I usually begin by talking a little bit about why we experience stress in the first place because I think that's quite Helpful to understand because you know we can sort of understand what we can do to alleviate stress and also why that works. Um, so I guess first of all, a definition of stress, which is when we feel like we can't meet the demands of a situation. So those demands could be you know physical demands. Maybe we're putting too much stress on our on our body. It could be demands on time, on energy, or demands on you know um, our emotional capacity to deal with certain situations because we don't have. Sort of this um unlimited capacity um to deal with you know um emotional things so essentially when we experience stress it's when our body thinks that we're in some kind of danger uh whether that's a real danger or not um and we have one response to to danger so you know when our stress response is activated it doesn't really differentiate between a real threat or a perceived one um and so we can react to, for example, you know an axe murderer in front of us you know versus a conflict with our boss um, in in the same way and so because we have this one response to stress, it means that our stress response is going to be you know more or less helpful um, in certain situations um, but you know it, our stress response evolved to protect us from the kind of you know physical threats that our ancestors would experience fleeing a you know rival tribe or. Um, you know, fighting off, you know, just being in dangerous situations, basically. Um, so things like being ostracized, you know, from a group isn't as dangerous now as it once was. Um, but we still react to things like social exclusion, judgment, negative evaluations, you know, as if it's a life or death, um, situation. So by knowing that, you know, we can then understand why sending ourselves signals of safety is really important. So, you know, practicing strategies that relax the body and relax the mind. So self-talk I find really helpful for me Um, and also, yeah, practicing those relaxation strategies. But I should say that sometimes, you know, when we do want to quieten our mind, it's easier to sort of um, do that through our body, you know, exercise and, um, you know, meditation, things like that. Um, Yeah, so there are a number of strategies. So we can look at sort of the symptoms of stress, which is we've got the cognitive symptoms and the physiological. So um, we can target the thought component or or the physical ones. So you know, for example, it could be um, you know, there's a whole heap of things we can do. Deep breathing. There's sort of a deep um, deep breathing exercise that you can do to quickly sort of activate that parasympathetic nervous system, which is the nervous system that's you know h- um, helps us sort of calm calm down. Um, and there's something called I'm not sure if you've heard of it, progressive muscle relaxation. So it's when you yeah, so when you sort of tense your muscles and you release, and that's something that, you know, a lot of a lot of athletes do as well. So before game day, for example, if they're really, if their body's really, really tense and and um they're feeling really nervous about the game, they can sort of um yeah, tense up their muscles, release it, and that really helps you kind of identify what it feels like to be relaxed. Cause so I think that can be important. We don't sometimes realize how tense we are. So yeah, lots of things that we can do to to manage stress.
0: I feel as though a lot of those have elements of mindfulness, you know, like, so obviously meditation, but then exercise, getting in tune with your body, the progressive muscle relaxation, getting aware of like the feeling of uh, tensing up and then releasing self-talk, you know, that's mindfulness as well. Is that a common theme among all of these approaches or am I overextending it?
1: No, definitely. Because if you think about it, a lot of the time, you know, we might be ruminating about something that's happened in the past or we might be anxious about something that's going to happen in the future. And so, you know, anchoring yourself to the present moment, really being in the here and now can really help. And so there's one strategy that I love doing when I've got, you know, racing thoughts, you know, everyone has their sort of uncontrollable intrusive thoughts sometimes, and it's called a five-step grounding technique. And it's when you use your five senses. So it can be, you know, what are five things that you can see? What are four things that you can feel? So using that, you know, you know, if you're trying to get into, you know, trying to sleep, you know, maybe like thinking about the the blanket, the the warm blanket and all those sorts of things. Uh three things that you can hear, two things that you can smell, and one thing you can taste. So that's a really yeah great technique um, that I love using that you can, you know, use pretty much anywhere.
0: Wow. So how effective do you find that? I, I, I've heard of it before and I sort of, to be honest, I personally wrote it out, off without even trying it. So do you find that effective for yourself and with clients? Do they, do they find it works?
1: Yeah, I think it's, a lot of the time it's not just one strategy. You know, I think it's practicing a whole host of different things as well. So um it's just knowing that you have this toolkit, you know, and you can access all of these different things. I think that can be really empowering because, when you're in those moments, you know that actually there are things that I can do. There are things that I know that will will work for me. And so one thing that I find really helpful personally is journaling. So it's something that I think if you do consistently can really help sort of putting all of those thoughts on paper. There's something about, I think, writing it rather than typing as well um, that I find really just, you know, you yeah, really therapeutic. And it allows you to sort of create a bit of a distance between what you're experiencing, how you're feeling and doing it over time. You can also see some patterns in behavior and start to, to question things and and shift and and change things as well. So I think, yeah, practicing a lot of things, I think really targeting the thought component and also the physical relaxation um, I find the most benefit from.
0: Very good. Yeah. And you mentioned rumination. So like I know, when I get most stressed, it's because I'm ruminating on something. You know, I'm not being mindful. So, what is it about ruminating, getting lost in thought, that is so that that can be so stressful for some people? Do you know yes. anything about that?
1: So, the way that we, yes, our self-talk, it can sometimes it can cause stress, and sometimes um, it can exacerbate stress. So, I think with with ruminating, like I said, you know, journaling really effective. Um, There is a technique that I like to use as well and that I talk about, which is thought reframing. And so, you know, what you can do is think about sort of the unhelpful thoughts that you experience most of the time or that sort of, you know, pop up a lot of the time, write them down and think about a possible reframe for that. And so what you can do when it comes up again, you can think about a thought or an action that triggers you to stop that thought. So, for example, if you've got a presentation or if you've got something that's really important and your thoughts are, I'm going to fail at this, I'm going to embarrass myself, all of those sorts of thoughts, have a trigger that stops you in its tracks. So, it stops the thought in its tracks. So, maybe, you know, shaking your head, um, saying stop, whatever it is. So, you stop the thought and then you replace it with a more helpful thought. And so, that automatically shifts you in a different mindset from sort of um, avoiding threat. To an opportunity mindset. Um, and so that's something that requires sort of consistent practice for you to then make it more automatic for you to then think in more helpful and balanced ways. Um, so that's something that, that people can practice. And that's something that sports psychologists use as well with, you know, players. If, if they're experiencing unhelpful thoughts before game day or, you know, just before they need to take their shot, you know, it's reframing that, um, as well. And, you know, changing, you know, shifting pers- perspective as well, thinking of things like and, um, like a learning opportunity, you know? Yeah.
0: Absolutely, yeah. So I want to come back to journaling, but for now, uh, have you heard of a term called doom scrolling? It kind of reminds me of, um, like, so obviously active versus passive scrolling is what I'm getting into on, like, social media. It kind of reminds me of ruminating, except in the virtual world, right? So, like, yeah. ruminating is, like, you know, looking at, challenge and just thinking about it as opposed to taking action on it, right? So it's kind of like you're scrolling through the feed of whatever social media app you're using and not actually like, you know, being present with your thoughts. Is there is scrolling on social media a form of rumination? Is that fair to say? Hmm.
1: I don't know if it's a form of rumination. Um I think it depends how you're using social media as well, you know, like there's a meta or systematic review that I've um, posted before on my social media page. And it really, like the, the relationship between social media and anxiety and depression, for example, um, it depends on a host of factors. So it depends, for example, what kind of cognitive style do you have? So are you more likely to be a ruminator? Are you more likely to brood? And therefore, social media might not be great, you know, for your mental health. So there's You know, a number of different factors, but I think potentially social media can make it more likely um, to, yeah, to have these negative thoughts or these unhelpful thoughts because we, you know, we all make social comparisons. We make comparisons between, um, you know, us and other people because it's a way for us to understand ourselves better. And we can make upward social comparisons where we're comparing ourselves to people that we perceive to be better off than us in some ways or downward comparisons where we perceive, you know, we think we're better than other people, but we're more likely to make upward social comparisons in, um, you know, when we're on social media. And so that can impact mental health um, as well. So there are all these different factors, you know, if you're having a lot of positive interactions on social media um, and you're, you know, you're using it as a way to connect with your friends and things, it can actually have positive impacts to on mental health. So it really depends how you're using it. Um how much you're using it, and things like that,
0: yeah, so it's like important to be mindful in the real world, but also on social media as well, because if you're making certain comparisons, then that can obviously backfire
1: Yes, definitely. I think we all have a tendency to make those social comparisons, and social media just makes it easy for us, easier
0: for us to do so so just going on comparisons, you know you hear some people say like, Oh, I need to compare myself or it's useful, you know. For example, at work, they might say like, "Oh, I need to compare myself to this person so that like I have a job because if I'm worse than that person, the worst the, the you know the, the kind of uh, a certain person, then I might get fired." For example, so yeah. is comparison completely uh, like a negative kind of way to look at things, or you know, is there a way to use it in a useful fashion?
1: Yeah, no, you make a really good point. Like when we make upward social comparisons, it's not always a negative thing it can be to motivate ourselves um you know we might be in a class where we we want people to to be better than ourselves because it's motivating and it's inspiring and it you know um makes us sort of you know grow and, and learn more um so yeah it dep- you know it depends on how you use it for sure um and you know sometimes you know if if it's you know, if we're experiencing more anxiety, if we're making an upward comparison, maybe we want to make downward comparisons. You know, so yeah, it really depends on on how you're using it.
0: Yeah, and just something I've kind of spotted recently in my own use of social media, kind of just randomly came about is I'll see some other athlete, and I'm not sure how I came to this point, but it's like instead of saying like, oh wow, they're so much fitter than me or whatever, it's like they have started to inspire me. So it's yeah. like. I'll see somebody who's like a faster runner or who's like older and running. There's, there's one guy who's like 50 and he's like done more marathons than me. and he's faster than me. And I'm like, I want to be like that. Instead of saying mm-hmm. like that kind of, I think is it. An, I'm not sure what type of comparison it is, but it's not. It's not affecting me negatively. It's actually inspiring me. Um, yeah. So is that like a form of reframing how we look at things? And how can I do more of that? Because I find it very like uplifting. <laughs>
1: Yeah, no, I I love that. I think it's yeah, it's a matter of sort of curating your newsfeed, you know. Um, definitely, I have, you know, other academics or are people that definitely I learn from and I'm inspired by the work that they create. Um, and I think that's a great way of of looking at it. Um, I think of yeah, I, I'm not sure actually in terms of how you yeah do that more. I think it's just identifying, you know, when people you know having more of those things where people are inspiring you sort of having more more of that content on your feed rather than um and just yeah noticing when you're not feeling great when you're you know scrolling through and and maybe muting those kinds of posts or you know that sort of thing yeah
0: yeah so i think it's a little bit of mindfulness for sure because like mm. without being aware of how looking at certain people uh, or or certain posts affect me um i wouldn't know how to react to it so i think kind of curating my feed a little bit, uh, has definitely helped. Um, Mm -hmm. so just going back then to the the journaling. So you have your own journal. Um, but, but before we get to that, so what, what exactly is journaling? Because I remember growing up, it had like a stigma for me. It's like, it's only for girls. It's only, you know, (laughs) like, (laughs) I don't know where this came from. I think maybe Anne Frank or something like that, but, um, it's, it's so silly because like, I think everybody should journal, you know, it's very useful once you get into it and you get the habit formed. So is there like kind of a correct way to do it or is there a certain style of journaling that people find most effective in your experience?
1: Yeah, so for me, journaling is just pen and paper. Honestly, just writing out what you're experiencing. Um, a few years ago, I really experienced, I think, sort of the benefits of journaling. I was going through something at work and, you know, it was, some, it was a comment that someone had made that triggered me. You know, we always we all experience that. And it was earlier in the week and then it was Saturday and I was thinking, this is still bugging me. <laughs> how do I, how am I going to deal with this? And I just found that writing about it, writing about what I was experiencing, the emotions attached to it, um, and really understanding the meaning that I had attached to what this person had said, because it probably wasn't, you know, I was making it into, to this sort of big thing and, and really understanding more about myself. So I think it's just, It's just writing. It's writing about what you're, what you're experiencing. And over time, you can see, um, you can see a pattern in that behavior. Um, I just, yeah, I find it really, really, um, beneficial. And again, I think, you know, I've tried sort of typing and, you know, using my, a Word document as a journal, but I think writing really does something else. Like I think it, there's like a, um, a deeper level of processing or something happens, you know, when you're writing. But yeah, I would, um, definitely encourage people just to, yeah to try it
0: yeah i would would definitely say the pen and paper i think it's more like ingrained in our like pathways to write with pen and paper than it is to type and in a few years Mm. i'm sure typing will become the new pen and paper like once a couple of centuries have passed by but for for right now until that time where typing kind of kicks in more i think writing it's like it's like an extension of your mind and you'd be surprised about what you'd write um The patterns, I haven't noticed that a lot. So can you talk a little bit about like how you you notice patterns in your journaling and just, you know, the benefits that people might see?
1: Yeah. So I think sometimes, okay, so one thing that's coming up in my mind is, you know, if you're in a relationship and, you know, sometimes I think when you're in a situation, you can't see it objectively, you know, and so writing about it over time, you can see, okay, this is how... I'm dealing with the situation. This is how the other person's dealing with that situation. Okay, maybe we can make certain changes. What would that look like? And you can see things a little bit more, I think, objectively because you've sort of created a distance between what you're experiencing um, and what you've written. Um, and, yeah, I find it to be, to be really powerful.
0: That sounds interesting. So you're getting a lot of distance from a situation that could be kind of triggering, uh, mm. which... Yeah. It it makes me think of a quote I got from a coach and I always debated it in my head because I think in, in uh gym culture it's all about like just train more, keep training, you know, uh the more intensity the better. So you know, kinda along those lines, the quote was uh feels ain't real. It's like how you feel isn't real. And I'm like, whoa, that is like very potentially toxic, right? Because like your feelings, if you're tired, you might need to take a break, right? So it's like um, you know. Do you think there's any tr- truth to that quote? Or like would journey yeah, be a time well, where you could flesh it out?
1: Yeah, feelings are um, you know, they they go up and down. It's like motivation is a feeling and that waxes and wanes, you know. Um, but there is a power in sort of identifying the emotions that you're experiencing and stating it. You know, there's that quote, I don't know who it's by, but it's name it to tame it. Yeah, and just by saying um, you know, instead of saying, I am mad, I am noticing that I am feeling mad, you know, that can help. Um, It's called, it's called, I think like emotion, oh, granular- granularity. No, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> but um it's, yeah, identifying the emotions that you're experiencing. And often we're not just experiencing the one emotion, right? We're experiencing a whole host of other ones. So I try and identify, you know, what are the, the top three emotions that I'm experiencing right now, and just by naming them out loud can create a distance between that um, your emotion, you know, what you're experiencing and, and the feeling.
0: Yeah, I've actually heard that before, specifically with depression, and people would say, "I feel like there's an Irish artist, Brezzy, I think his name is. You mightn't have heard of him, but I think he named his depression like uh, the black dog or something. And when yeah. he when he named it, like that, he got distance from it. Mm. I, I, you know. I would need to be like fact checked here. Like this could be completely wrong, but <laughs> I've heard of the whole idea of naming a feeling or something because then it kind of takes the power away from it. It's not this vague, like uh, insurmountable challenge in your head. It's actually it kind of reduces it in size and you get a bit of distance from it. Um, so yeah, definitely. With with your your journal specifically, what are like some of the features of it? What, you know, what can people get out of it, and uh, why did you put it together?
1: Yeah, so. I yeah, wanted to create a resource where I'm sharing, you know, information that can support people's well-being um, and using evidence, you know, based strategies, um, as well as things that have helped me personally. So I first created my well-being journal. It's not too content-heavy, it's meant to be sort of like an exercise book. So I find that there's this, you know, there's a real gap between knowledge and action right you know we know the things that we're meant to be doing but we don't often apply it to to our lives um and so what i wanted to do was sort of provide people these you know you know for example um my wellbeing journal starts by talking about creating habits um, and you know values and goals and creating habits that stick and you know there's prompts and exercise that exercises there for people to think about how they can actually apply that, you know, straight away to to their life. So for example, um, I talk about habit stacking. Have you heard of habit stacking before? Yeah.
0: Yeah I absolutely yeah, in his book. I've heard of that before. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's 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 really great. Um and so instead of just going, you know, this is what habit stacking is, which is um if you want to create a new habit, it's pairing a exist existing habit with a new one and so those two habits together um sort of the initial habit cues um the the new habit and so writing about that but then also asking the person you know what habits do you want to create how can you actually you know put this together and so um yeah i wanted to to find ways where people can really apply what they're learning into their real life so my well-being journal talks about um creating habits like i said unhelpful self-talk so there's some exercises they're inspired by cognitive behavior therapy and um and i talked about the sort of you know reframing unhelpful thoughts and things like that um sleep hygiene sleep is so important for for physical health and mental health for everything um and and also just some relaxation um, strategies as well and then you know ask people to to think about their well-being goals for the day Um, and then i've got the the goal setting and behavior change journal as well and that talks about 20 evidence-based tips to improve goal setting and creating habits that stick to support long-term behavior change. Yeah.
0: Well, very good. So there's like a lot that people can work on uh, with those journals. So uh, could you give an example of habit stacking that like maybe you do, or you've heard are effective for other people? Because I know, I feel as though I haven't used it in a while, but I know it's very effective when I do use it.
1: Yes. So one thing I did recently was I want to stretch more in the mornings. I get a really just tense, you know, my tense shoulders and back. So um, stretching in the mornings I find really really helpful. Um, and I would forget all the time, like you know, it'd be midday in the afternoon, and I'm like, oh crap, I you know, I forgot to, to stretch this morning. Um, and so what I decided to do was stack that behavior onto an existing habit. So in the morning I'll always have a coffee or a tea or something. And so as soon as I make My tea, for example, I'll go to my mat um, and I will stretch. And so that's one way that I've sort of paired those two habits together. Um, I also find that visual reminders work as well. So actually having my mat in my lounge room so that I see that as a visual reminder in the morning too. Um, So both of those things together have been really, really helpful. Um, But, you know, if you want to start a journaling practice, let's say, you know, if you have a morning coffee, maybe that's when you can, you can journal. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And just, can you explain the kind of the visual cues as well? Because I find sometimes I'll try and leave out again, when I'm being mindful, I'll leave out like a reminder for myself, like a sticky note of, you know, remember to do this, or this is coming up, or you want to focus on that. So, um, yeah. Why are visual cues important if they are at all?
1: Yeah. Um, Honestly, I think, you know, we're so busy that we often forget, you know, the goals that we're working on, the habits that we want to create. So having a visual reminder is, is really important. So, um, yeah, just, you know, having, you know, your sneakers near your front door, you know, if you want to go out for a run a bit more, if you want to eat more fruits and vegetables, having that at the front of the fridge, you know, things like that can really, can really help. Um, so and that and also making things easier for you to do as well so the example of having the fruit you know the the front of the fridge and then having things that you might want to avoid maybe you you know you're snacking quite a lot you want to cut down and having that at the back of the fridge just making those slight adjustments can make really big changes to behavior
0: yeah actually i used to think that it was like some really clever hack to like leave my shoes out to run or my clothes out to work out and i'm like you know this is kind of nerdy or whatever and then i'm just like you just explained it there and i'm like No, it's literally easier. Like it's not, there's no complicated science behind it. It's like, if my shoes are where I can see them, it's easier to run than if my shoes are in a cupboard and I can't see them. You know, it's not, there's no rocket science to it. It's like very, very straightforward.
1: Yeah, well, the thing is with our brains, we, our brains are pretty lazy. You know, we, (laughs) it opts for the easiest thing that's going to give us the highest reward. So I find that helpful to remember. So if you're trying to cut down on snacks, having it within arm's reach of the couch isn't going to be helpful because your brain goes, okay, I need a sugar hit. I want that. Um, but if it's somewhere, you know, downstairs in the pantry or whatever, and you've got a bowl of fruit right in front of you, you know, you'll opt for the fruit. So, you know, little adjustments like that can really help.
0: Yeah, that's uh, so that's true. I think putting like the candy, the snacks that I have in the home, I put them out of sight and they're out of mind. And then I just typically don't, yeah. don't snack as much. Um, so going back to the the stress, so you had a, a stress management workshop. So you really got into the the kind of the weeds of, of stress management. What was discussed there? And like, you know, what were the kind of the key kind of takeaways for, for people who participated?
1: Yeah. So I think, um, yeah, with stress, what I like, I like to talk about sort of the fundamentals as well, you know, first having the fundamentals there, making sure that we're eating well, we're moving. Um, You know, exercise releases a whole heap of sort of feel-good hormones and chemicals that can help us manage stress Um, and also quality connection. You know, having good support around you I think makes a world of difference. So if you have the fundamentals there, you know, you're off to um, a good start. And also, you know, building good routines and habits um, are important to manage stress. So building, you know, routines and habits that incorporate all those things. You're eating well, you're sleeping well. You're practicing good sleep hygiene and things like that. Um, But really I'll talk about also the the cognitive and the the physiological sort of responses to stress. And we kind of go through different types of um, breathing techniques, for example. So um, we've probably talked about breathing techniques on this podcast before, but, you know, ensuring that your exhale is longer than your inhale sort of activates the vagus nerve, which is, um, involved in calming down our nervous system. So our vagus nerve is the longest nerve in our body and it connects our brain to our gut um, and it's sort of a two-way in a two-way direction um, and activating, yeah, that. A lot of things that we can do to calm down our nervous system works by um, activating our vagus nerve. So things like humming can actually, yeah, stimulate the vagus nerve singing gargling so anything that's sort of using sort of vibrations in your vocal cords, um and and yeah so but breathing is a very easy easy way to a really quick way um and then we talk about reframing unhelpful thoughts so um you know some sort of journal prompts and things like that that you can use to really sort of critically analyze sort of your, your thoughts so um you know if you've got an unhelpful thought um, thinking about what evidence do I have that that's true what evidence do I have that that's not true you know and some strategies you know require a bit more time uh, but we talk about you know strategies that can be done very quickly um, or if you you know um, you know have a bit more time but also these things I like to think about them as the skills that we can you know we can build so Just like, you know, building a physical skill that takes time and repeated practice, right? So, you know, if you want to gain muscle, if you want to gain endurance and strength, you know that you need to put in time um, to to build those skills. So it's the same with mental skills. And I don't think we think about it in that way. If we want to build confidence, if we want to build mental resilience, if we want to manage stress better, we can do this with, you know, time and practice. Um, we can we can build these
0: skills. Yeah, I'm just thinking of how if we're talking about a physical ability like strength or let's just say muscle mass, we can see the change. Mm-hmm. But if we are getting uh, more mindful, it's, it's harder to measure. Is there any way somebody could measure, let's say they're journaling and they're trying to like improve a mental skill, cut down on, you know, scrolling or I'm not sure whatever it is, you know, uh, is there any way they could track it to, to get objective feedback of this is improving or it's not?
1: That's a good question. <laughs> um, I'm not sure. I think when it comes to, well, I guess when it comes to meditation and all those things, that becomes a little bit easier. It becomes a, you know, a little bit um, easier to not be so distracted. So you might sort of notice those um, shifts, uh, but in terms of maybe, you know, let's say building confidence as a skill, you know, you can see that happen, I think, quite quickly. If you're exposing yourself to situations that you find quite, um, you know, that that make you feel anxious or fearful, um, that can happen quite, quite quickly. Um, and so, yeah, that's really interesting. I've never thought about, like, you know, those sort of really ab- more objective measures in the here and now. Um yeah, so I think over time you can sort of track that with your mood and things like that. But yeah, I think that's one of the the things. why, you know, it's hard sometimes to um, feel motivated when you're doing, you know, when you're, you know, even even going to the gym. You know, it's not like, you know, you you come away with a set of abs, you know, if you hadn't had any before. So one of the things you can do is trying to make the activity more enjoyable, more rewarding while you're actually doing it. So, you know, one of the the reasons why we make goals is because we want to receive some sort of long-term benefit, right? We want to be healthier. We want to be more fit, whatever it is, but we don't gain those immediate rewards at the time. So um, making it more enjoyable. So things like exercise for me, I don't like exercising. I'll be honest. <laughs> it's very hard for me to get to the gym by myself. So I have an accountability buddy. I have someone. I have a friend that makes it much more enjoyable um, for me for me to do um, and, and things like that. Yeah,
0: that's actually what well, you had me thinking along uh, the lines of. So you mentioned meditation, and uh, I used to meditate with guided you know tracks, and I was like, I'm not noticing any benefit. This is like you know not great. And then a friend recommended uh, silent meditation, and they're like, I swear by it. Just try that. And then I was able to check in with his friend. And basically I was able to like note the benefits I was seeing. And even for mm-hmm. example, just doing something slightly more challenging, I was like, I'm, I'm actually doing this habit now. So I wasn't noticing any benefits, but the fact that I was making it a habit was kind of uplifting. And then, uh, to have that, that kind of buddy, like you mentioned, it just made it easier. So it's like, that's a, that's a good hack. If you're finding it difficult to form a habit is to like get someone else to like do it with you. Um, do you ever find that like, is an effective way to form a new habit?
1: Definitely, because I think there's two elements to it. There's It's more enjoyable <laughs> if you're doing it with someone else. And also, it's that social pressure. You don't want to let them down, you know. So I've actually started meditating um, with a friend. So we go to this me- these meditation classes. And honestly, I, I don't know if I would go to these classes by myself, but it is, it's more enjoyable to do it with her. And, um, yeah, there is that social pressure of, I can't not show up, you know, I'm going to let my friend down. Um, and also, you know, you get support and encouragement along the way. And and that's an evidence-based strategy as well to, to help you reach your goals. People who do have accountability buddies are more likely to achieve their goals and to stick with the habits that they're trying to create for longer. So, um, yeah, definitely a bit of a hack there.
0: Good, yeah. And it's good to know science is on our side. It always helps. Yeah. <laughs> um, Just in terms of doing a a group meditation, how does that compare, just out of curiosity, to doing it on your own? Do you find any difference there? Because I know in my experience, I actually really enjoy doing a group meditation. Uh, It just feels very normal. Whereas when I'm doing it on my own, I'm like, I'm going to finish early or I'm not going to do it. Or I feel you you can kind of feel weird because there's obviously no one else around you where there's no social proof to be like, yeah, this is just what we're doing right now. You know, so do you ever find it's easier in a group?
1: For me, yes, I get very, um, I'm very easily distracted. Um, And so if I do meditate by myself, it will need to be like a guided meditation and I like visual imagery. So you can find some really great ones where, um, you know, they're they're telling you what to to think about and what to imagine and um, that I find quite helpful, Um, but I'm just not as likely to do it on my own. I, you know, if I say to myself, Oh, I'm going to, I'm going to meditate. Um, I think about oh, I'd much rather do all of these different things. So I haven't. I've just started. So I think when I really, you know, when I really, you know, see those benefits we we're talking about, I think I'll, you know, more likely to incorporate that. But yeah, I, I think it, it feels it feels nice to do it as a bit of a community as well, you know. So the place that I go, they're very social after as well. They've got tea and things like that, and um, yeah, it's it's really nice. I think if you join a community where the behavior that, you know, or the, the habit that you're trying to create is the norm, that can also help you as well. So, you know, if you're wanting to run, joining a running club, those sorts of things, if you want to read more, joining a reading club, um, that can really help.
0: If you want to lower your stress, join a, a workshop.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly.
0: <laughs> so just going back to the workshop, uh, so, like, is is stress, like, really common right now like is burnout common like um because you know sometimes like say i would personally feel stressed but i'm like maybe it's not the norm or is there any kind of like general statistics on stress like as as a you know in in, i guess you're in the east but in the west like or in the world what what are the levels of stress like right now do you know any idea
1: gosh i don't actually know the statistics um but i think Yeah, stress is unavoidable. You know, I think we're all juggling a lot of things. Um, there are so many things that cause stress. Um, school, health, finances, all of the above, cultural and societal expectations, even change can cause stress. So, you know, things that we can't predict, things that we don't have control over can elicit a lot of, a lot of stress and anxiety in us. Um, yeah, I think that stress management for everyone, we can, you know, we can build skills, we can strengthen this, we can be better at managing stress because it is unavoidable. And, you know, it's just a fact of life really. Um, Yeah.
0: And just in terms of like the different types of stress, is there, is all stress bad or is it like, I've heard of like you stress and stuff like that. So like is stress just necessary for like growth or sort of like skill acquisition. Is that like a factor of, of change?
1: Yeah. So no, so stress is not all bad for you. So in fact, there is a inverted U relationship between stress and performance. So up to moderate levels of stress, it actually aids performance. You know, it, it helps you feel more alert, focused, vigilant. Your muscles are more prepared, activated, um, up to a certain point and then with high levels of stress, it can um, you can see sort of detriments to performance. But there is actually an interesting study that looks at how how bad stress is for you. So, it found that whether you perceive stress as affecting your health matters, and this comes from a study conducted in what was it? I think between ninety eight and two thousand and six. It was published in two thousand and eleven, and they looked at, I think it was like 28, 29,000 participants, um, US participants, and they found that people who stated that they experienced high levels of stress and perceived it to be impacting their health in a negative way actually showed a 43% increase in premature um, death. So that's a huge number. Um, and so people who reported high levels of stress but didn't believe that their stress was harmful we're not as likely um, to see those negative impacts. Um, so it seems like it's not stress that's bad for you, but the perception of it is. Um, you know, the perception of stress being bad for you is bad. Um, and I think it comes down to what's called locus of control, you know, which is whether we believe that we have control over something, in our in this case, you know, health. Um, So feelings of autonomy and believing that we have control over something uh, or control over our own life seems to be really important to us, you know, believing that our health is in our control. Um, And it's not only linked with better health outcomes, but also uh, mental health outcomes. We see lower levels of stress and anxiety. Um, And actually, it sort of reminds me that one of the topics that I discuss in my workshop is called stress reappraisal. Um, which is reframing our feelings of stress and anxiety. So when we feel stress, we often tell ourselves, you know, just relax, you know, just calm down. Um, but it doesn't work because being relaxed and feeling anxious are two very different emotional states. And so our brain and body just doesn't buy it. Um, so if you think of, you know, symptoms of stress, right, you've got high cortisol, your heart rate's elevated, um, and that's also present when we feel excitement, and so it's much easier to trick your brain into believing that you're actually excited um, than it is to trick your brain into thinking that you're calm when you're you know really quite stressed um, so you know next time you 're feeling nervous, you know you can you can try saying that. Um, I do that a lot actually, so when people go, "How are you feeling I'm really excited <laughs> um, and I think one of the reasons it 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 helps is because. We tend to link stress to having negative impacts on performance and health, um, but we don't do the same with excitement. So excitement can put us in more of a opportunity mindset, meaning that we're sort of looking at or focusing on the good things that can happen rather than a threat mindset, which is when we tend to focus, you know, on the negative consequences of stress um, in terms of it impacting our health or or performance. Um, And I think a lot of us can be, you know, in in that sort of threat mindset, and it's really robbing us of the pleasure of looking at ways that we can enjoy the situation or improve our skills. Um, so, yeah, that's one one technique that that I benefit from.
0: <laughs> that's very interesting. Yeah, so it reminds me of the quote: "It's like perception is reality." So it's like there's mm. a bit of truth to that. Where from what you said, where how we see things actually is our reality, but we can kind of we. If we're more mindful, do you think we could just choose to see things in a way that serve us as opposed to that hinder us?
1: We can, but I think, again, that takes practice and takes time, you know, to to make that way of thinking more automatic. Um, But in terms of perception, the scenario that I always like to talk about um, is, you know, when there's, you know, imagine two people on a plane. You know, one person's really relaxed, they're looking out the window, they've got their headphones in, they're playing their favorite music, um, and they're just enjoying their time. And then you've got another individual, let's say, sitting right next to them, they're gripping their seat, they're terrified, you know, they're having all these thoughts, like doom and gloom thoughts. Um, and so they're experiencing the exact same situation, um, but having entirely different perceptions of threat. And so that, so, you know, it's often not the situation that's eliciting stress and anxiety, um, but it's our perception of it that, you know, we're in danger, we're not, um, that can be unhelpful.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I'm just thinking of um, recently I noticed I was, like, tensing up in my body. And thanks to, like, you know, the kind of quiet meditation I've been doing recently, I was able to, like, recognize that. And instead of being, like, I'm tense, so therefore I'm stressed, I was able to, like, stop myself and be, like, like there's no actual threat here, like relax. And then it was able to like dissipate a little bit. But um yeah, I think you know, even thinking of a workout, for example, it's like I'll put on more intense music in a workout to sort of get my heart rate up and get more like psyched up for for the workout. So um yeah, it's like just I'm thinking of the progressive muscle relaxation. Like have you a lot of experience with that? Because as I said already, I kind of I tried it, didn't find it that effective. But do you uh do you think it works well for most people?
1: Yeah, I think it's something that a lot of sports psychologists and coaches use with athletes. Um, I, do, I do use it. I hold, a, like, a lot of tension sort of in certain areas, like my, my hands, I kind of tense my hands up and, um, and sort of my neck and my jaw, and I don't realise that I'm tensing until I'll do something like progressive muscle relaxation. Um, where you're tensing and you're releasing and that release, you realize, okay, this is what relaxation feels like. Right. Um, And, you know, sometimes you don't have to do, you know, progressive muscle relaxation. You can just say to yourself throughout the day, you know, stop tensing or relax or just rolling your shoulders back and things like that. Um, And having, yeah, having those little, I guess, statements throughout the day or mantras or whatever it is um, to help you.
0: Yeah. Just, Kind of tuning into your body, I think, is, is a very useful thing to do to mm. appraise things more effectively. So an, another post I saw on, on your social media was uh, decision fatigue demonstrating uh, research studies that show that the impacts of ego depletion. So decision fatigue, I've heard of that before. And then I've heard of things like our ego and stuff like that. And so like, what is decision fatigue um, and, and ego depletion? And how do they like tie into stress, if at all?
1: Yeah. So decision fatigue, it's when the quality of your decisions deteriorate with repeated decision making. So we don't have this unlimited supply of sort of mental energy for things like making decisions, um, practicing self control and regulating our emotions. So those three seem to be quite linked. So making decisions, self-con- practicing self control and regulating our emotions. So, um, you know, if we've, you know, spend a whole day making really important decisions, that will impact our self-control and our abilities in regulating our emotions, essentially. So it comes from that same pool of of resources. So, for example, you know, this might mean that, you know, it's best to make really important decisions at the beginning of the day. Um, So there are some ways that, you know, we can reduce decision fatigue, and that's by making routines, um, by creating habits. So habits are, uh, you know, the, the non-conscious or the unconscious sort of things that we do during the day. So, you know, we, we don't really think about when we're putting our seatbelt on, when we're brushing our teeth, for example. That's a habit that we already, we do. We don't decide whether we're going to brush our teeth in the morning or I hope not. You know, we don't decide whether we're going to put our seatbelt on. Um, so creating routines where we're minimizing decision making and that means you free up, you know, brain space for important decisions during the day. That's why you hear, you know, Steve Jobs and I think it was Obama, they wear the exact same outfit, um, same clothes to work every day. Um, and that's because, you know, that's one way you can reduce the impacts of decision fatigue by not having to, to make that um, decision. Um, and also things like, you know, making sure that you're having breaks during the day, um, you know, sleeping well, sleep's really important. Um, and trying to just, you know, automate some of your daily tasks by creating a routine um, can can help as well. So, you know, not deciding. Oh, should I go to the gym or not? Just sort of having that as part of your your routine, you know, on a Wednesday on a, you know, whatever it is.
0: So you mentioned values earlier. And if we're forming like a routine or a schedule for the week or like for months, is it almost like a, it sounds like it would be anyway that we'd need to know our, what we value in order to make a routine. I don't think you – is it possible to have a routine without knowing your values, do you think? Or are they, they kind of go together?
1: Yeah, I guess they do go together, right? So, you know, if you're valuing your health, if you're valuing, um, you know, learning, all of those things are going to tie into the habits that you want to create. Um, so I guess values are like, you know, they say like a compass that sort of guides, you know, you on, on your path. Um, and when you sort of steer too far away from it, you can kind of, um, you know, I think you feel it, right? Um, so definitely I think, yeah knowing your your values is really important, and that's an exercise that I've got in my journal actually It's sort of identifying you yeah, what things that you value and tying your goals to those values um, and then you know creating habits as well um, to, to help you reach those goals
0: so in terms of like figuring out our values, it kind of sounds straightforward it's like you know what's important to me, but I've done it before I think it's a little bit more challenging than I first expected so you know what is the kind of the work that you you have in the journal for people doing that, and like how could somebody who you know isn't clear on their values, how could they begin to become clear on them and start to live by them?
1: Yeah, so I think yeah, it's it's identifying what's really important to you. Um, when I was trying to narrow down my top three values, I actually I did the opposite of that, and I was thinking, what are the things that really um, really aggravate me? You know, what are the some of the situations that I feel really, um, that sort of light me up and I want to, you know, I want to talk about. And um, and that was another way that I found, you know, for example, respect. Respect is, for me, a very important value. So if I see disrespect, if someone disrespects me, um, that's something that, you know, really makes my blood boil. Um, but, you know, that's one strategy. So I think really sort of reflecting and, and thinking about what's important to you. Lifelong learning is also something that I think is really, really important to me. And that's by looking at sort of my, my you know, what I've been doing. I've done a lot of study, <laughs> um, you know, uni, undergrad, uni honours, um, postgraduate. I've just started lifestyle medicine. Like I'm just always <laughs> studying. And that's definitely one of my values. So I think, you know, it's it's a combination of things. It's looking at your past behaviour. It's looking at things that are important to you. And, and yeah, narrowing so- it down That yeah.
0: Got Yeah. Narrowing it down. Yeah. So, and then once you, you narrow it down, um, does it make things like decision fatigue and ego depletion, like less of a factor? Like, does it make, uh, making a schedule or a routine like more straightforward?
1: Yeah, I think so. I think keeping in, in mind what your values are and creating goals from that can help. Um, and then, yeah, so I like to sort of think about my values and then go from there Then goals, then you've got creating your, your habits Um, And then trying to, you know, build these routines. Um, I do want to say as well, though, with creating habits and building routines, because I know that, you know, it's the end of 2022 and it's, you know, the beginning of the new year, it's when we like to create all these big goals for ourselves, but work on creating one or two habits at a time. I think sometimes we go, okay, new year, we want to change everything, we want to change how we're eating, you know, like all of these different lifestyle factors uh, but really focusing on one thing at a time is important, and thinking about what sort of your your keystone habits are. So you know your keystone habit, what is that one habit that has all of these positive impacts on other sort of other behaviours in your day? Um, so you know for me it's it's sleeping well. If I'm sleeping well, then I'm much more productive. I'm not going to be easily distracted and you know scrolling on my phone for for ages. Um, I'm more likely to eat better, I'm more likely to exercise, all of those things. So actually focusing on my sleep as number one um, is really helpful for me. So thinking about um, yeah, what's the what's the one habit or the you know, one or two habits that you can really focus on at the beginning of the year. And then you can, you know, create habits what well, when 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 that becomes a habit, you know, you can sort of stack more onto it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. A keystone habit is so important. I find like for me, it's exercise and once that's like taken care of in a day it's not like i have a great day but it's like almost i never have a bad day if i get like some form of exercise in so yeah it can really like you can almost stack habits then really you could you know you get the keystone habit in place and then you, you have it stacked then um, exactly yeah so just another post you had uh was on immediate rewards or delayed rewards um so which predict you know long-term goals so like kind of like talking about habits again. Um, Like are immediate rewards just a terrible way to go about like forming uh, long-term habits or do we need like a mix of both or, you know, how do we go about forming habits and goals? Yeah,
1: no, immediate rewards are actually really important. So I was mentioning before, you know, when we set goals, we're often thinking about these long-term delayed rewards that we're going to receive. Um, But actually the research suggests that we tend to stick to goals when we enjoy the pursuit of them. So, um, when it's immediately rewarding, Um, so, you know, the way that we can use that sort of research is by making it more enjoyable. So, you know, if you want to eat healthier, how can you make eating healthier, more enjoyable, maybe your favorite smoothie in the morning and you're adding more vegetables to it or your favorite pasta sauce and you're adding more vegetables to it or whatever it is. Um, if you're, you know, exercising, I do it with a friend that's making, for me, it's those immediate rewards. I'm enjoying my time with, with my friend. Um, so, yeah, trying to create immediate rewards because motivation waxes and wanes um, and we can't always rely on our motivation um, to keep us going. Even though we really want to improve our health, you know, we, we also need those immediate rewards whilst we're pursuing that goal.
0: Very good, yeah. Um, what kind of like immediate rewards would you recommend uh, for like, let's just say someone, you know, that I work with, they're commonly trying to change their nutrition. And I'm not sure why, but <laughs> it's coming to mind as like candy as like an immediate reward, maybe because it's kind of like, that's typically a snack or something. But obviously, if you're trying to improve your health and your, your nutrition, I don't think candy is going to help. So uh, let's just use the example of nutrition. Someone's trying to improve their nutrition. What kind of? starting point in terms of immediate rewards, would they be able to maybe like track or focus on to to achieve a longer term goal?
1: Yeah. So I think about what they can replace the candy with. Can they replace it with a healthier alternative, Um, you know, their favorite fruit, for example, um, that something that they'll still enjoy eating, you know, it might not be as good as candy, but, you know, it's still a replacement. So I personally find that for me, Stopping behavior, I find that that quite hard. You know, saying I can't have this, um, that to be quite difficult. So I like replacing it with something else. Um, but yeah, finding different ways that you can make that enjoyable. Um, so you know, think about yeah what their what their favorite things are to eat, and just either replacing it or um, adding something to it, adding you know lentils or vegetables or you know fruits and things like that to the meal, um, and and go from there.
0: Got it. Yeah, so it's kind of it's almost like reframing it, but like reframing a habit or something, or reworking the habits that you have in place. Um, yeah. So, just the the final topic I want to touch on is like social media use. It's like something that's talked about a lot. A lot of people spend time on social media. So, uh, is social media use linked to mental health problems like anxiety and depression? And like, what does you know the science say about uh, using social media?
1: Yeah. So touched on this study a little bit before, but it was um there's a systematic review that was done. So essentially they looked at a number of, of studies. So they found that there were studies that found that there was a um a link between social media and lower levels of depression anxiety and some studies that found a higher level um, and then some studies that didn't find any sort of relationship. So they looked at okay what's actually going on here. Um, and often you know there isn't a clear cut relationship between all these variables. There are a number of moderating factors so factors that make it more or less likely that that something will um you know will occur or will lead to depression or anxiety and so it it really yeah it really matters you know um you know there's individual characteristics that matter so the cognitive style of the person so i mentioned before whether they are more likely to ruminate um whether they're, you know, experiencing mainly, you know, positive interactions or negative interactions, those sorts of things. Um, so I really think it depends on on the person um, as well as how they're using it. And, um, yeah, but there's not a sort of clear-cut line because I think, you know, especially with the pandemic, like social media was great for so many people because they were able to connect to, to loved ones and family. Um, and I find it a really great way, you know, personally to, to keep in touch with, my, you know, high school friends that have travelled around the world, you know, things like that. Um, But when you can sort of identify that it's impacting your mental health, um, then I would say, you know, try and restrict social media time, maybe, um, you know, curating that feed and and, and things like that. But it doesn't necessarily um, lead to greater levels of anxiety and depression.
0: Good. That's good to know. So, I've heard of things like uh, dopamine, fasting, like these kind of extreme trends or um, I've seen, you know, even for example, like how I saw your page was through social media. So I know like there's different approaches to social media. You can get benefits, but there's drawbacks. What What is your like sort of let's say your like opinion on social media kind of almost like research aside, like on the whole. So do you think uh, social media like for people's mental health, is it like a negative for the most part or is it kind of gray or is it like you know mainly positive
1: see I think I'm more inclined to say it's probably not great for us but I personally (laughs) you know like I like using social media again to connect with people and I find that I learn a lot from social media as well you know there's some really great uh you know content creators in there there's some great educators on there um but yeah so I think it is it is something that I think we're all addicted to, and I think we need to use it more mindfully. Um, I think you know we you know we need breaks during the day, and we often reach for our phone when we need a break. When really you know we should go for a little walk, or we should you know do something else. Um, and I find that there are some some periods where you know time where I I wake up, I'm on my phone, I'm on my phone during the day, at night, and and I have to leave my phone in a different room. I have to make it more difficult for myself to, to get on my phone. Um, so I think there's, yeah, positives and negatives. I think it just, yeah, it depends on how you use it. But yeah, I mean, I'm not sure. I think the, I just think about the younger generation and, you know, and bullying and all of those things and those comparisons that we make. And because we see the best of people's lives, you know, and we're comparing that to, how we're feeling right now, which might not be, you know, the best. So it can be, yeah, it can be quite damaging. I think, yeah, I think that we need to find ways where we're not, we're just not on it as much. We're experiencing the real world, you know, we're experiencing, um, experiencing life more, instead of, yeah, we need to find different ways. I think to relax as well. I don't know, it's a tough one.
0: <laughs> yeah, it really is because there's a lot of benefits and there's a yeah. lot of drawbacks. I heard a great quote. It was like. Uh, sometimes uh especially on so you can do this at any time but especially with social media we compare our insights or our internal world to someone's external world which is Mm -hmm. of course like you know that's a terrible way to compare because you have no idea what's going on in someone else's world um but Priyanka, this has been great thanks very much for your time is there anything you want to uh tell people about plug or wrap up with any final message before we finish up
1: Yeah, I just want to say thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure to talk to you today, Ross. Um, If you want to find me, I have um, a social media page called Interested in Research. So it's an Instagram um, research account. And I've also got a website, interestedinresearch.com. There's my uh, workshops there and resources and, and things like that. And you can contact me through the website. So, yeah, thank you so much, everyone.
0: Yeah, you're welcome and uh, your page is great. I found uh, a lot of it in comments information, especially posting distress management workshops. So keep up the good work and maybe we'll have you on again. Okay, thank you.